I often have to take special care with the information shared on Go Dig a Hole, uh, as some of it can be quite sensitive in nature. With that in mind, none of the views shared on this episode reflect those of any of the members, employees, or institutions they're affiliated with. What a crazy couple weeks it's been. The blog got hacked, and it's literally taken all my bandwidth to uh, deal with all these things. Uh, No pun intended. Well, maybe a little pun intended. But anyway, uh, the blog is returning this week, and now the podcast is as well. I'm also making some public speaking engagements this week, so look forward to hearing about that on social media and possibly in an upcoming episode of the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Welcome back to Go Dig a Hole. If you listened to the last episode, I switched up the format on you. This one's also a different format in how we switch from a panel discussion to a casual chat. I was back in Denver last week with Michael Ashley for Codify. It's tough to carve out time for things like podcasts when I'm on the road, but I was super happy to sit down for dinner with Chris Driver and Jesse Woods to have a good chat about all the things. It's a little all over the place, but what we come away with is a contextualization of archaeology within the current political climate. Codify is just one part of that, but it's really resonating with people like Chris who are working hard to do good things for the public and their heritage resources. If you haven't heard of Codify, it's the tech startup that Michael and I are partners in. I don't talk about it much on the podcast since this is entirely listener-supported and ad-free, But Codify is more than just what pays my bills. It's the materialization of my life's work for most of the past decade. We're currently an army of two, but we're growing very quickly because the people we've been working with to take their archaeology projects paperless have pushed the boundaries of the field and the limits of what we're able to do with our technology. Chris Driver is one of those people who have pushed us and inspired us with his approach to archaeology. So this episode was super fun. Well, <laughs> well, then here we go. Um, around third grade, I figured out that I had to pick a career, and I liked PBS, and I liked Nova. Oh. And so I decided from about third grade that I was going to be an archaeologist. No way. From Nova. Yeah, and, and that was after not really having watched a whole hell of a lot. Because it's not, it's not like we were like a PBS family where like my parents donated. Right. And, and like it was on all and the time third, or whatever. At third grade, you're, you're what, like seven years old? Like, oh, God, I don't even know. I have no, no conception. No. Yeah, he um, should know. Ten, you should look, know better. Nine, ten? Ten, probably. Nine, yeah, that sounds about right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, okay. that's fine. What even are kids? Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Kindergarten, six, seven, yeah. eight, nine. nine. Yeah. Ten. Yeah. In your case, probably. Ten. Probably. No. <laughs> so, and, and, and what the, what it was is, I was thinking like nine, 
<laughs> so what it was is my parents are from Guyana um, in South America. And, and honestly, like one thing that they really did try to instill in me was to actually pick something you like. My dad has never really like super loved his job. My dad should be like a park ranger or something like that. Like, yeah. He's that kind of a dad. But he's instead an engineer and project manager. Dude, that's my dad too. Yeah. So, so, and so I kind of just picked it because I was interested. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't a very good student. My parents actually paid for like a year subscription, I think, to Archaeology Magazine when I was in high school. Didn't read a fucking one of them. <laughs> <laughs> it would come every, every month. Never read it. Um, the, I read Card Driver. Yeah. <laughs> I, read P- I read PC Gamer. I think so. I've had a longer subscription to Car and Driver than and Motor Trend yeah. than I did to Archaeology Magazine. Yeah. That's sure. nice to know that Motor Trend is a real magazine. It's like one of those things that's always cited in like the ads, and you're like, is that real? Or, or did you make that oh, yeah. up? <laughs> yeah, their reviews, you trust them too. Okay, it's good like, to know. When, when, when they go, this, this car slaps. <laughs> You go. I don't know what that means. Hell yeah! <laughs> Hell yeah! That car slaps. <laughs> <laughs> that archaeologist slaps. Hold him, Yeah. yeah. Nah. So, so honestly, though, what really did it for me is that um, the one thing that was utilized to its full extent that my parents did uh, do for me, um, in reference to archaeology, was that we were living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And in lacrosse, where I ended up going for uh, my degree, um, they did a public field school. Super badass. So what it was is the Mississippi Valley Archaeology Center. It's a contract firm, but it's nonprofit. It's associated with the university. So what it actually was is they had gotten a contract, I believe, and don't quote me on this, But I believe it was a WSDOT contract for road widening north of Lacrosse in a community called Onalaska. Um, this and this is way back in the day. Um, and oh, that's what it was. It was a it was a mall. A, the mall was going in. Um, I cannot remember Valley View Mall. I think what the name was. It was in the eighties, and they hit all this stuff, and they called the professor at the the archaeology professor at the university, and he came out and. Oh my God! There's an entire late prehistoric village site here, <laughs> and they really, de- basically, over the years, they developed a relationship with developers and such. So by the time that I was there, um, what happened is this was another project. I believe it was a subdivision that was going in, and they took, you paid a fee, um, and it was the they do a public field school every year and so you pay a fee and a lot of the of us were young people and we just went out and we dug features whoa for god i, I don't even know if i remember maybe two weeks maybe like three there's probably two i think that's how much it was like we stayed in the uwl dorms went out dug features and it was amazing, you know, just just be and, and and they were they were basically pedestaled areas because all around us are bulldozers going by to you know bulldoze for the foundations of the house going and and yeah we're just digging late prehistoric oniota features 
as a public field school. And, and that that was really great because, you know, how everyone says, you know, if you're going in an archaeology program, do you need free field school as early as possible? Because then you'll know if you like it or not. I got that really early on. And honestly, it kind of sustained me because I've always actually been quite the cynical archaeologist with all the shit that I come, come up against. But eh, not even against. I probably just make a lot of it up, frankly. Um, <laughs> but at the end but you know i i it's not like a conscious thing but if i actually think about it i probably will trace it back to that that experience wow. that experience of actually being out there physically interacting with objects that people in the past touch use that were part of their lives and and and, 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 and and being outdoors while doing it. That's yeah. that's the main thing. That's the main touchstone. Um that it, that experience is, is always been the touchstone for me, I think. Nice. Yeah. That's interesting that you, that you talk about like how uh, how it sustained you too. Because that, that was gonna be my next question is like well, what what kept you going in the field? Like, you know, you've been involved for at least a decade now and uh there have been plenty of chances for you to get out well i mean you know maybe not as much as i i as people may think you know because oftentimes i know that i've been in situations where i've applied for a job and people say you're archaeologist on the resume or the application Um, and i think a lot of people see that and they don't they don't think that translates yeah Um, to a certain extent i may agree it's perhaps not the most practical of all degrees but you know at the end of the day though really it it has been about just trying trying to and this is a conscious thing it's not that's the thing that my parents didn't fucking tell me it's a conscious thing yeah to to do the thing that you actually love to do and frankly it's a conscious thing to realize you actually love the thing that you're doing yeah. Well, it's not just like that your parents didn't tell you to do it. I mean, for me, going mm-hmm. through the entire program in anthropology, nobody told me either of those things. Yeah. And it was nobody told me how to make a career yeah. out of it either. So it's like, you know, on, on basically graduating day, I'm sitting there going, okay, um, yeah. what next? Yeah, and it's certainly not. I don't think it's it's a discredit to my professors, the people that I worked up with, and all. Like, you know, I'm kind of an anxious person, and I tend to kind of push a lot of those kinds of things that might worry me aside. So I know that that's definitely been a part for me. Um, Yeah, and I I don't mean that as a dig against my professors either. Oh yeah, certainly great mentors. Exactly, an undergrad, but it was also one of those things where it was like. There definitely was not a focus in um, career development. Oh, no. And it was also, I mean, to think of, of the time that, that I was coming through it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, mid-2000s, 2008. How do you even plan for career development at that point? Because everything is different now. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I decided... A while ago, sometimes I may regret this choice. I think, but I decided in my undergrad that I wasn't gonna go for a PhD. Um, that was I, I, we were definitely kind of. I, I think we we came up with people who really kind of emphasized that, and 
and and saw that but there was one particular archaeologist that i work with that you know he he always told me it's just like you know what you can do the same thing as every other phd all you have to do is publish something every year and i've certainly i've certainly not you know <laughs> up to this point taken his advice yeah but i'm working on it and nice. but but he's right you know like that that's the thing this is definitely a career where as you get higher and higher in it you spend less time in the field yeah that's there a, was something that bothered me at first when i got into it because i i thought oh i want to be in the field all the time mm -hmm. and how do you feel about it now when, when you're not in the field all the time i'm finding a balance because my work is meaningful so because i work for a municipality i am protecting a resource and i'm I'm managing something and I'm managing a place that's important to a lot of people and and that even even if even if those people because it is the community that it is even though those people may not you know realize it the things that I interact with really do define the character of the of the world that they live in you know it it, yeah. it grounds it in history and and so that that is and, and and that's the thing is like so this is a very specific circumstance because i can i can fall back on that the other part of it is that i am in the office all the freaking time now that's that's just the way it is and so but you know what now i have the energy to do other things so being involved with colorado archaeological society it's great i'm really happy that i've done that because it's really allowing me to when I, the other thing about Mississippi Valley Archaeology Center, you know, kind of based on what I told you about the public field school is, is that focus on education and the idea that people will actually care about cultural resources. You actually tell them what you're finding out. Yeah. So if you're, if you're not walling it off from people, if you're not, again, just sticking it in the box and putting it on a shelf and no one's ever going to see it. You know, I, I mean, we can have conversations about what things are appropriate to show and what things aren't, and those are valid conversations. Right. But there are, there's always stuff that we can talk about. But generally speaking, yeah, like if you if you can bring the archaeology to the people, mm -hmm. yep. there's always and 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 it and it really connects people to the places where they live. Yeah, and so 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 that's the main thing. Is like I I I work my work is meaningful in a broad sense and then you know in my off hours like if i want to get out of the field i can you know because that's that's the advantage of working for municipality like you know I, we want to i should say i want to take the society we had a survey done a few a year ago where people said they want to do things like site recording they want to do things like survey yeah, a lot, a lot of volunteers here at Colbert. Exactly, and and the thing is, is let's harness that really because again, the the governments aren't going to do it, and right. the the developers that will just pay for it because they're doing a good thing. That's that's few and far in between. Yeah, I recognize how rare that was and how fortunate um, in lacrosse we were to have developers that wanted to work with us and yeah. that saw what we were doing as valuable and, 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 and interesting. Right. Um, 
that's a huge advantage and that's something that you cannot say is going to be everywhere so to be able to harness people and say you're interested in this you have the motivation to get out there and you want to feel something and walk around a place and actually interact with the pieces of the landscape that really ground it in its history by all means let's take advantage of that yeah you know i mean we've got a thousand resources on that system if this site stewardship thing goes through the way it, it will yeah one day we can manage all of them yeah site stewardship is one of those really really tricky things where it's like how do you find the resources to do that because when you can do that you can make things like you were talking about like having having a developer's interest in the land and just rewarding that and mm -hmm. making that something that's meaningful because they don't have to do that it's like a crazy double like you know public private public 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 thing yeah you know right where it has it has just amplified return for doing it and somehow that puts it at even higher risk yeah yeah as it happens so that's good that's great yeah i mean i, I think we should recognize that you know we're t oftentimes we're talking about communities that can afford to to do this yeah so i think it's even more critical to do this in areas where that are really at risk of losing their cultural heritage because of development um and and really look at the factors that that and, and really look at the factors that create that situation so you can plan ahead so i mean we know that it's easier to develop in areas where there's a lot of renters, which means there's a, there's more people of lower income status. So we need to prioritize those areas, yeah, in urban contexts and say these are the areas that we're gonna we're gonna talk about things. We're, well, first we're gonna document the cultural environment, and then we're gonna talk about things about how to preserve those communities, um, because they don't have as much bargaining power. They don't have as much political. And then, and then the, you know, all the communities that are gonna be impacted by things like you know. Historic preservation projects, um, and coming up with some far away that that you know it's not just lip service to mm -hmm. really telling the stories of these of these places if there's going to actually be basic to this place. Right. Yeah. It's it, it, but it's all, it's also a question of incentives because at the end of the day, gentrification is happening because little Gretchen, that's an old name. Mary um, <laughs> is, is not going to turn down a million dollars for a house that she paid twenty thousand dollars for. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's she's reaching the end of her life. She's got to think about things like long term care. She needs that money. So, or her, you know, descendants. Too, exactly. You know? And I mean, and like... and so if we're not incentiv if we're not incentivizing people to to stay in their communities. Then they're those they they are gonna get overrun, and yeah. and when you lose the people who live in a community, you lose the sense of place and the will to protect things. Yeah, I got about two minutes left, man. I think um, um, we had some good times here in Colorado. Yeah, last couple of days have been really amazing. Both visits have been, uh, I'd say, transformative for our company. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm glad. Like, I mean, <laughs> to be honest, when I talk about you, I refer you to you as my mentor, frankly. Um, 
that's that's because you actually like you're the first person that i think kind of showed me that you can do actually really cool stuff with <laughs> with this freaking career <laughs> you know that the, there's there's things that, that will interest people and 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 it really it really just takes learning a skill and and, and learning a suite of skills really so that's probably weird, but I don't. I don't that's care. I mean, like, you. I mean, you you've been very influential for me, and, and 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 honestly, for both of you, like, I am in awe of what you guys are able to do. I mean, part of that is from my perspective, being kind of a kind of a guy who doesn't like to take a lot of risks, yes. and you know, being kind of kind of a wuss, frankly. But you know, like, like you guys, you guys have the drive and the vision that i really admire thank you and i i really i support you guys all the way and and that's the thing it's like you know this it, it's made even easier by the fact that, that like what you're doing is really is really gonna help frankly because you know in a world where governments and municipalities and you know people we're not seeing the support for cultural resources in yeah. in government. It is about being efficient and it is about being accessible. Because if 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 a government isn't gonna pay for it, then you have to build systems that make that possible. So yeah. That's that's where we're at. Thank you, Thank all. You, man. I, mean, I feel the same way. So the notion of being able to generate um, a report of what whatever you did on a Tuesday, because you're out in open space, you're doing cool stuff, you're seeing neat things, and you're making that relevant to a fourth grader. Mm -hmm. You just got to write a report. The idea, I mean, there is such a fucking need. We keep talking about this for decades, and and I've I, and I've had the personal fortunate experience of being involved. In like multi-million dollar projects for making that real. Yeah. And they're unsustainable because those of us that create content mm -hmm. actually create content being in the field, doing the things, are not allowed to do that. Yeah. Yes. All we need to do is make it possible. And when you talk to someone like Holly and Steve, they're like, does this fucking do it? Mm -hmm. It's like, that's a whole new world. Somehow this shit made that happen. It just takes That's people it. saying, this, this somehow yeah, let's do it. was a distraction of common sense so that this is my revelation of the moment today. This shit is, I don't care about this. This iPad. Any of it, any of the technology. What it does is it's a conduit to a conversation that leads to, wow, digital literacy or whatever and nth literacy we're talking about suddenly becomes a possibility. And back to why perhaps I'm being... Mean, why you think that is that we don't have to sacrifice quality. Mm -hmm. We don't. People have told me all the time, almost daily, how can we get away with this other fucking Well, thing? that's Codify's whole ethos like, is no, you want to be cutting no edge? Do you want to be cutting corners? Dude, that's your line. It's the best line ever. By the way, I was going to say, that should Isn't be that like the tagline. No, this is the tagline. <laughs> that's the best line <laughs> ever. Do you want to be cutting edge? Do you want to be cutting corners? I, I can see that it. like... 
Like a, that's like a commercial that I, I can mean, see that, right that now. I mean, that is like, the that's... rebuttal to the argument of streaming. <laughs> My God. We should all go to show it. Don't forget about it. I'm going gonna, 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 like, to message one of you tomorrow and be like, P.S. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that's the whole thing like, about streamlining company. is like, <laughs> it, if you are deregulating, there's nothing cutting edge about that. No. No. There is no. That's the easiest thing to do. That's what they've been doing. Yeah. And you're. 100% of the time going to run up against friction, mm-hmm. uh, sloppiness, you're going to endanger communities, you're going to endanger resources, and even if you don't care about those things, as most of these blood-sucking ghouls who push these kind of policies do, like it, it's always going to backfire because that's not smart business mm-hmm. management. But that's the trick that these people have been led into is you've got these politicians who are just like, chasing this dream of having a profitable sector of their little corner mm-hmm. of their political world and a personal world like a yeah world or personal world, world. And, and sure maybe world. maybe it's like you had said earlier maybe it's profitable for a quarter and that's all they care about mm-hmm. and then they're out mm-hmm. yeah and then it's absolute mayhem after that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're looking at is, is you've, you've got these careerist politicians who are coming in with just like smash and grab tactics. They're like, fuck yeah, I'm going to bust open the store. Everybody can make money for free. Well, and, and like, I'm going to get out before anybody's left to clean up the mess yeah. behind me. In terms of current events, I think that's what you see with so many Republican lawmakers saying that they're not going to run mm-hmm. in the next election. And I think the latest... They're getting out. And the and the latest budget negotiation is the other side of that. Yeah. Where, I mean, because really this is the first time in a while that they've had the opportunity to direct money where they want it. I mean, because what what is actually, what they have actually signed just raises the caps. They have... A fair amount of t- they have a fair amount of time set out because they've already agreed. They've agreed on what they're going to do. They've agreed they're going to raise the caps. Now is when the real work starts because mm-hmm. they're actually going to be figuring out whose state, whose district gets this money. Yeah, they're going to start mm-hmm. apportioning it out, and we're not going to see that process at all. No, you know we're that's completely opaque. No, you know that, and 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 and, and yeah, like the, you were talking, the people who voted for that, you know, they're the I mean, there are good things in it. That's it's good that Chip is funded for ten years. Sure. Yeah. But did we need to spend ninety billion dollars on the military? Could have spent, you know, maybe maybe a few billion, maybe ten or whatever. It's it's not great that helicopters are fucking crashing like all the time. Yeah. You know? Or we have so many ships that they're all crashing in. Exactly. Other. You know, but but maybe Yeah, but yeah. but do we need a base in Braunstein? Do we need Bromstein base? Do we do we need a base in Saudi Arabia? Uh, do we need to have drugs vaporizing <laughs> women and children in Nigeria? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah. So, God, yes. I like fucking yeah. Anyway, so 2018 October November should be fun. It's gonna be a fun. It's gonna be a fun fall. Uh, it's gonna be interesting. It'll be. It's gonna be a true fall. My my my, 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 are my projection is it's right. going to be a, no, no, no. Yeah, it is. It's what a clap! <laughs> um, just yesterday, just I uh, just came off the news. It, it's it's so 
it's happening so often now that it, bare, it doesn't make it in the front page, but I got it all dialed in my Google News analytics algorithms and shit like that. But yeah, some other fucking small Senate thing and some small thing, some Republican went, and now it's a Democratic thing. It's happening all the time. Mm-hmm. It's happening at such a level now that it's just like, it will never be reported because who's got the megaphone now? Yeah. MAGA. MAGA. Right? So. Yeah. I mean, got the, I, I, the tweeter in chief is is the one who's controlling all the media, and right now there's uh, the Olympics going on in South Korea, and and, and you've got and Pence, Mike Pence didn't have a seat, and um, yeah, oh he had to sit he had to sit next to Mother. Yeah, he didn't shake anybody's hand because he's a fucking douchebag. Yeah, <laughs> and meanwhile, the entire Olympic opening was about. That was the actual message. Well, that's what it is every year, but like, let's be real, it's not always. I mean, that's what the Salazar show. dictatorship ran on for 50 years in yeah. Portugal. Chris and I follow the thread of contextualizing archaeology by talking about perspectives on the actual practice of archaeology and the value of its research to others. So, one of the more powerful experiences, I would say, uh, when I was doing my undergrad is we had a weekend when we went out and we worked with the Ho-Chunk Nation and I believe it was the Thibbo who was there I wish I could remember his name but um, he told us that from his perspective and the perspective of perhaps other people in the tribe that you know and and him (laughs) the cat is okay well whatever um (laughs) Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <it's> funny. <coughs> uh, and, 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 and honestly, I'm <clears throat> very much paraphrasing here. But he basically told us that from his perspective, the days of archaeologists digging up sites were done. Um, I know that that, for him, came from a perspective, you know, of the place that a lot of Native American communities find themselves in and and seeing archaeology as an extension of colonialism and subjugation and whatnot. And that was an idea that took a while to absorb because, you know, coming at archaeology from a very scientific viewpoint of, oh, you got to find out all the things and learn all the things about all the people because it's really important that we know exactly when these, you know, this group arrived here, you know, extrapolate out to a million other things. Um, but it, it took a while to absorb, and but eventually, like, yeah, I mean, I really started to understand that you know, again, what are, we, what are we doing this all for if we're just pulling stuff out of the ground, putting it in boxes, and putting the report on a shelf? And the thing is, if you take that to its logical conclusion, nothing's happening with it. And if you take... And if you understand from the perspective of a lot of Native communities, too, like, they see that, and you know and then that's also wrapped up with the politics of everything but you know they they don't see their patrimony is really they don't want their patrimony to really 
could sometimes to really contribute to that scientific knowledge because of the things that are wrapped up in it. And yeah, and I understand that. And so I I am actually I think I, I think that I'm really more in favor of not digging. Frankly, um, I think yeah. that's that's easier for me being a historic archaeologist because historic archaeology in a, in many ways is um, makes things easier <laughs> for interpretation. You don't necessarily need to go poking holes yeah. and Swiss cheesing a site. Um, well, I think in general, it, it, it really depends on the, the preservation environment, mm-hmm. right? But I, I think in general, that's, that's kind of uh, the best practices. Is preserve in place. Yeah. Um, I, I had a conversation with an archaeologist who's working in Alaska uh, last week who, um, you know, she said that because of the nature of climate change and the way that permafrost is behaving, mm-hmm. she said that what used to be preserve in place is now rot in place. Right. Um, but so it, it really depends on where you're doing it. But I think well, it depends on where you're doing it, and it also depends on from the perspective that you're doing it from. Because right. preserve in place for a long time was <clears throat> preserve in place because one day we're gonna have a <clears throat> sorry, we're gonna have amazing methodologies that are gonna let Star us Star Trek learn, technology, yeah, yeah, all this shit about you know whatever, and preserve in place. I think for the has changed for the better to be more about well if we don't need to disturb it why do so um yeah and that's a really and at the end of the day that's also a really good way or or i hope i should say i I shouldn't speak for for them but i should i hope that it's a way for to respect um the descendants of or to respect uh indigenous communities and yeah I mean, again, of course, we're talking about in, in specifically indigenous sites here, but like, right, that that we can integrate those kinds of understandings that aren't solely, you know, science based and aren't solely based on the idea that we need to pull as much knowledge out of whatever, right. you know. I mean, if if we can, if we could have a more community minded archaeology, we don't have to think about it in terms of its. Almost, you know, it's a step away from straight up commodifying it. Right. I mean, no, we're not putting a dollar value on it, but we're still, like, looking at them as resources, as things to be used and exploited. Yeah. And And if you view it, if you view all potential land as potential research value, Mm -hmm. then that goes back to what you just said about about kind of commodifying it, Mm -hmm. but in different terms where, you know, if if you kind of switch it up to be kind of more of a, uh, um, a preservationist or conservationist mindset where well, not even pre- stu- stewardship know, like, mindset is the steward, way that I like to Yeah, think. I, like I the, think that's probably the better way to think yeah, about that. Steward to me means that you're 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 working to preserve something you're working to You're working to maintain the pieces of the landscape that are really part of its identity. And sometimes that may be fixing something, and sometimes that may be just leaving it the hell alone. Yeah. And that's fine. That's such an interesting perspective. And I, I, I think that that's, that's very informative of 
uh, of probably what you've learned moving from CRM to working for the state? I would say I learned it before that. I would say yeah. I learned it actually in my in my, my master's thesis. The thing that I, the thing that I learned is that there is so much minutia out there to keep stu undergraduate students and grad students busy for a billion years. It, it's it's insane. I mean, the amount of stuff that's on shelves that no one has looked at for years that that can be analyzed in this way and that. <laughs> Frankly, if I. If I had any influence on a, on a university, I would want universities to tell their students, you come into this program, you're using an existing collection. You're not going out and digging. Yeah. Um, because that's the thing. You know, you look, you think about, <laughs> you think about it, and, and everyone is so, gets so, like, hard about, yo, you gotta have a specialty. You've yeah. got to be you've got to be a ceramics analysis or you have to know a shitload about, you know, something voluminous like homesteads. <laughs> <laughs> like like that's that's your specialty, man. Like you've got to really focus on that and double down and and this and that. And the thing is is like it's not like that they're so you think about that. It's not like there's people out there that's just like, man, you really got to be a specialist at digging. Like that's it. It is a skill. Yeah, that's for sure. But the act of excavation is in isn't in and of itself the point of archaeology. <laughs> you know. So in my mind, you're not you. You're learning. You are learning things when you excavate. And and like I said, being out on a site that can that can really help you being out on a site is always better than having than being handed a, like a bunch of paperwork in an office and being told write this up having never been there yeah. you know that it's always going to be better being on the site from but from the point of a student who is saying i'm going to become a specialist in this they can become a specialist by dealing with collect with already collected stuff oh they yeah. don't need to go out and collect new stuff or conduct an in, in, in excavation and I get that that for many students is really formative I really really get it but the thing is is that's in a way that's kind of sad because I think it says a lot that there are some archaeologists who they're aside from their field school their masters or their dissertation work might end up being the only excavation that they work on for 10 or 15 years <laughs> or, or or like i, I mean and, and, and i'm saying like a, like what i'm talking about like an excavation as in like a full-blown like phase right. three yeah but that might be the only phase three that they do for 10 or 15 years because they may go into academia and, it, and they may be an adjunct for five years and uh -huh. they may not dig anything then or they may go into crm they do surface survey for five years <laughs> right you know what was at the end of the day, what was the real intrinsic value of them pulling out more stuff from the ground to do right. their one particular study? Well, and I think also thinking back to why more stuff gets pulled out of the ground, like to, to move it back into the CRM world, is that reinforces development, mm -hmm. right? And so 
when you're looking at at that kind of a mindset where you're like, well, um, I, I mean, I've had a lot of CRM archaeologists who are just like dyed in the wool, been working in CRM for decades, who have said, well, development is good because it means we get to look at sites. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dude, plenty of people have looked at sites. Like, <laughs> you've got so many chances to look at sites. Yeah, you you don't have to go and dig a new site mm. just to look at a site. So to go back to what you said, like there are so many collections that have not yet been fully analyzed. So many collections that have not yet been fully, um, you know, like uh, the the data that was gathered is not yet made meaningful. Mm. Is not yet made available to research questions. You know, so uh, there's so much potential in these collections. Yeah, there really are. I mean, for it, it some it was something that I I tried, I should say, to focus on in my master's thesis. Um I did end up working out in the field and so I guess my out is that we only found a few sake related artifacts <laughs> in the field so I can say that like, well, you know, my field work really didn't pull anything out of the ground. That's what I that's what I intended from the begin from the beginning, but then things changed. But um, Was that an Amache? At Amache, yeah. But but for my undergraduate thesis I was very focused on not digging more, using the collections that we had, looking yeah. at at, at, at stuff that, that we had already um, it helped that I did an experimental project um, but but yeah like like I, I was I was focused on like I'm not and, and the thing is it's too at an undergraduate level UW lacrosse making us do a, a thesis is not the most common thing in the world um, my degree from, from there is actually in archaeology it's not even anthropology wow nice um, I mean, honestly, it's a great fucking program, and, yeah. and the ability to do that is is really awesome to to specialize right away like that. There's there's some shortcomings, I think. Um, I shouldn't, I can't talk to the program now, but there's some shortcomings I think for me going to grad school, not having as heavy a theoretical background as perhaps I needed at the time. But I chalk that more up to my desire to not do reading outside of class because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i know there's a lot of people out there who are very motivated and, and whatnot and would read journals but you know me i'm not i'm not too good at that outside yeah. of my day to day yeah i was i was telling michael on our our drive back up here today you know like uh, I, I was a good student in high school i was not a good student in college mm-hmm. um I, I did not care to do research outside of what I was absolutely required to do, but I had this professor in my senior year, uh, her name was Cheryl Clawson, and uh, on the first day of class, she said, nobody makes a name in my class. She goes, if you absolutely try hard and you do everything right, maybe you make a B. Mm-hmm. She said, some of you will make a C, a lot of you will fail. And for me, as someone who had not really made any good grades in college, it, it just hit me like at the right place at the right time. And mm-hmm. that, that was what <clears throat> pushed me. And it's just like, 
I ended up making an A in that class. Mm. At the at the end of the class, she goes, "How did you make an A in my class?" And I said, and and I was sitting down in her office, and I said, "It's because you pissed me off." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. <laughs> that can be motivated. Like I am not that person. <laughs> I am definitely. I definitely try to skate by when I can. I would definitely yeah. say that. Well, I, I definitely did too. But it was it was one of those times where it was just mm. like I don't know. She just struck that chord in me. Yeah. And I was like, you told me I couldn't do something, and I thought I could do it, so I did it. That's awesome. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. So what's your day-to-day look like now when you're, um, like you had mentioned that you're in the office more now than you were, you know, when you first got into archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, like when, when you're in the office, are you kind of reviewing reports? Are you in charge of, like, authoring reports? No, you know, there was, there was a lot of that when I first started. I was... <laughs> I was actually hired to do a particular project um, that I still haven't done. <laughs> so I think, okay, so let me freaking like think, think about this. So it's 2018 now. We just went through 2017. So I started in April of 2016 and pretty much the first day that I started, they're like, oh, hey, we need you to work on Section 106 projects. I wrote, basically wrote a few reports. Uh, our department ended up, actually, I think, last year, finally, like, officially closing out all of our flood stuff. So that was done. And then we've kind of morphed into more, I guess you would say, a planning sort of role. Um, because we do we do have leadership in the department that wants to expand what we're doing um, and and make it meaningful. So it's really a lot of day to day stuff, but really a lot of it is is kind of interacting with the planners and and whatnot. We're we're inter- we're starting a new process by which um, which is if it if it goes well will be really great of you know trying to integrate all of our basically permitting and you know. Uh, compliance everything at the beginning of a project so we know what we're running into yeah um and so it's 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 been it's just super proactive it is and it's something that that when i arrived there it's something that i started asking for and that my coworker, she at the same time she she was like yeah we should be doing this we should be advocating for this and and it's starting to happen so i mean we're 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 being positive, none of these projects have actually kicked off. I think we're still in proposal phase, but um, we're we're doing a lot of kind of you know trying to trying to think about our resources and how what's the best way to manage them within the constraints of these project areas and, and stuff like that. And, yeah, and yeah, so so yeah, so it's a lot of planning, and then and then there's the occasional stuff that just kind of pops up, um, you know, so. The other day, we got an email about uh, that they're removing some. The Century Link was using a helicopter actually to remove some power poles in one of the canyons, and 
Um, I was familiar with that area because I had documented a historic age uh, telephone line, and so I wanted to make sure that those poles weren't historic. They weren't, but that's the kind of stuff that just kind of pops up. Where <laughs> yeah, it's like, like, oh, you like, like oh, I, go I really hope they're not yanking out these yeah. historic telephone poles. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so it's it's just kind of like being aware for for things like that. And, yeah, but but you know, I mean, I think that there's 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 already been a culture change because, you know, based on what I've been told about how things used to work, I'm getting emails now about projects that, you know, are, are in the planning stages that cultural resources would not have been notified about that. Yeah. You know, and, and so, like, we're, we're, we're getting through to it, you know, when you tell a project manager, it's just like, well, if you can't tell me that you're not going to pull a federal permit, you know, being willing to say, I can't tell you that everything's going to be okay and, and fine. If you're if you're telling me that you may or may not pull a federal permit, let's get out in front of it and let's actually do something about it now. And we can talk about what that is if the data is recent enough. You know, we can just maybe do a review and 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 poke around at a couple sites. But if that data is old, we're going to have to go out there, or a contractor's going to have to go out there, and. You know, I, I think that making making the argument for that is probably the hardest part of the job, but I think it, I think the message is being heard. Um, if 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 anything, it's from a compliance thing, or from yeah. the compliance side, because they don't they don't want you know some from their from their perspective, they don't want one little thing having to do with the cultural resources jack a project. So. Yeah. From my own perspective, I well, we're working in the southeast at least. Like, I saw a lot of things change after two thousand nine, mm. where you had these people who had kind of relationships and experience with compliance and relationships and uh, experience with agencies. They their roles were either cut or maybe they retired or, or moved off to do other things. And then you had new people come in or just those roles never got filled again. So when you have uh, you know contractors coming in to do compliance, it, you know, they, they more or less know what they're doing, but um, the the relationship isn't there, right? Yeah. And so I, I think that the the space that you're operating in is incredibly valuable because you're informing these people and telling them basically like how how to stay on the right side of of protecting the resource. So on that note, like um, yesterday, we were joking about the government shutdown. Mm. What kind of an impact does government shutdown have on things like being able to protect archaeological resources? I mean, from our perspective, I don't, I mean, I didn't hear any person in the city talk about it, it, it having an effect on us. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'm sure that's perhaps different for municipalities that may rely more on federal funding. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think 
that's ever really been a concern for me. And, and like I said, you know, I have worked on a lot of the projects, kinds of projects that you have. So like, you know, I could see federal funding running out or, or the government shutting down or like that could shut down a project. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I don't remember reading that much about public archaeology until yeah, like kind of our generation yeah. started putting stuff out there and, and they were like, hey, here's why it fucking matters. Yeah. And that was really, I, I think that was really the big question that was left mm-hmm. after you had like the processualists and, and the classicists and stuff like that. Where it was like, oh, okay. So we've got a good idea of, of how archaeology works, but why does it matter? Yeah. That was that was the big question that was left. It was, it was like, okay, well, well, now what? We've got all this shit in museums. Well, why does it matter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and, and 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 I mean, I I think it, I a lot of times just think it's as simple as sense of place. That's it. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's a fair amount of studies that show that even if people are informed about like, you know, let's say ecological values and stuff, you know, informs the to the point where they could see things like, oh, I noticed that that's a natural sweet or a species that's native to this area or whatever. It actually doesn't. That according to these studies, it doesn't necessarily translate into increased scenic value. Which seems counterintuitive because you would yeah. think that if you knew more about a place, that that when when you when you look at the landscape, you'd be able to see more. And 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 it's compelling because that's the way that I feel. But the thing is, I know what not everyone is like me. Um, and and, and but the thing is, is at the end of the day, because that's how I am, there is still a value in it. No. It, Maybe it won't be that it increases scenic value, it increases aesthetic value, right. but there's still value in knowing the history of the place. And from my own experience, I feel it makes me more connected to places in the real world. So I'm I'm willing to go with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, if someone wants to show me a study that it really doesn't do anything at all, I mean, fine. You know, but from my own personal perspective, I think it's valuable. You know, there's there there's there's something about actually being in a place. There's something about actually touching physical stuff that that is real and phenomenological and experiential. Like that that's 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 real. Like, like I was saying, yeah. it, it's much easier to understand, to write up a site if you have been out there and you understand the landforms and you understand what's around it and what can be seen and what is experienced. You know, I mean, something that Adamache, that our, that our interviewees would always talk about, they'd always talk about the dust storms. Um, which is crazy because what, so, so the site's on like a hillside overlooking, or a ridge overlooking the Arkansas River Valley, and it's prairie ostensibly, but what happened is like when they built the internment center, they scraped the surface and then built the internment center. So mm-hmm. the thing is they scraped off all the veg 
And so in turnings, we always talk about the dust storms. And yeah, you know, I hear about them, I hear about them, you know, fine. And then one weekend, a friend and I went out there to do GPR out there for my thesis, and we got high winds and a dust storm. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I really experienced, had that experience that I actually understood what these people were talking about that they experienced when they were kids. You know, that's... Like, I have such a greater appreciation for their experience now, having just yeah. experienced that one really, frankly, insignificant, <laughs> you know, snapshot in time. You know, yes. that wasn't, I didn't have to deal with that for four years. I didn't have to deal with yeah. all that sand leaking through the cracks in the barracks because all they did is they put tar paper on wood framing, you know. But I still think that experience was valuable. And it, and it really did in inform you know my research because yeah like just those those phenomenological experiences you you've got to think about how that impacts your research and impacts what you um, think about when you're interpreting what you find on the ground. Mm-hmm. The timing of this conversation couldn't have been more prescient. Since we recorded this episode, the federal budget was released and several laws have been proposed that will dramatically reduce opportunities for archaeologists. Research funding is being gutted, resources for researchers are being gutted, and cultural heritage is facing some pretty dire threats. Two main points kept coming up during our conversations in Denver last week, which cannot be stressed enough. One, archaeology must be public-facing, and must involve descendant communities and the public. And two, Archaeologists have to work hard to innovate and diversify their field. There is no more, this is the way we've always done it. That option got streamlined. You can't see the air quotes, but there were a whole bunch in there. I fully believe that we can organize as a community and outmaneuver the policies that are threatening our field and the resources we study, but it has to matter to the people, or what are we even doing? I highly recommend you check out the Women in Archaeology podcast and their recent episode on using older collections for archaeological research. The role of museums and digital archaeology have become hot issues lately, and they do a great job of bringing important perspectives to bear on these topics. If you want to know more about Codify, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, you can check them out at codify.com. It's all over social media at Codify Connect, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Thanks for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated and uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again and please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, You can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, The blog is godigahole.com. You can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.com.